Heavenly Father, we're, we're thankful that we have a Father that, that loves us, that feels our pains, that sees things before we see them, a Father that has the power to reach where we can't. And Lord, in this day, as we have loved ones that we know so well whose hearts are broken, who still can see the positives in the darkness, but yet have lonely hearts, comfort them, sustain them. We pray that your love might draw them to you. And Lord, give us wisdom. Give us insight that can only come from thy spirit, that we might know how we can better serve thee and our loved ones at this time. Be with those that can't be with us, those who find themselves perhaps on sick beds or shut-ins because of the weather or illness. Bless them as well. Be with Mike, Lord. Help him to be transported by thy spirit to a place where he can bring forth the words that you have for us. And we'll thank thee for the blessing we know we shall receive from thee in Jesus' precious name. Amen. To begin this morning, I'd ask you if you would to turn with me to Mark chapter 8. I wasn't in the, the Bible class this morning and actually got a little nervous um, watching the path of the Bible class lessons the last couple of weeks. I had been in Mark uh, studying here for the last little while and then I asked dad as he came in, I said, well, where were you, what was the Bible class lesson? He said, Mark 6. And, okay, whew, at least it wasn't exactly the same. But I know Mark 6 was one that we had uh, looked at a couple of weeks ago. And so I, there, there's something here that we're supposed to continue looking at. And so I'm, I'm thankful that we can do that again this morning. Um, I don't know that we'll read the whole chapter, but I think uh, what I'd like to do is to, to read a, a couple portions and I, I'll stop and We'll talk about those things, so we may not read it all the way through, but just ask you to kind of stay with me as we would look at Mark chapter 8. Um, <clears throat> I don't think we really have to do a recap because you did some of that already this morning in Bible class. So we'll start with verse 1. It says, In those days, the multitude being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples unto him and saith unto them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have, been, they have now been with me three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away fasting to their own houses, they will faint by the way, for divers of them came from far. And his disciples answered him, From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? And he said unto them, How many loaves have ye? And they said, Seven. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and gave thanks and break, and gave to his disciples to set before them. And they did set them before the people. And they had a few small fishes, and he blessed and commanded to set them also before them. And so they did eat, and were filled, and took up of the broken meat that was left seven baskets. And when they had eaten, there were about four thousand, and he sent them away. We'll stop at verse 9. <clears throat> There's... It fascinates me, I've got to say, that if you literally flip one page in your Bible, you have two stories that are so similar. One fed 4,000, one fed 5,000. We have 
these two accounts that, that parallel in so many ways. And, and I, I had to wonder <clears throat> what it must have been like to be the disciples having these experiences, experiences with Christ. And I know when we talked a few weeks ago in chapter 6, Jesus had told his disciples that he was going to take them away and that they were going to, to go and rest somewhere. And every time they seemed like they were going to get to that restful spot, there was something else that came up. The people had pressed against them and then he had to feed these 5,000. And there was the little boy who had his, his lunch and, and Jesus multiplied that and says that he set them down by order and so that they would be um, kind of, I guess, organized to coordinate this, this feeding. And then they have their experience where they go out in the ship and the sea is tossed and Christ walks out next to them. And just imagine what it's like to be these disciples that are following Christ and trying to understand this ministry that he's, he's teaching. They're listening to every sermon that he's preaching to the people. They're experiencing every moment with him. And yet, these monumental experiences, these miraculous occasions keep, keep happening. And they need to, to process them. So, put yourself in their shoes. You're, you're there with them. You've been, in the day, in the multitude, been with the multitude in the wilderness for a number of days. And Jesus looks at the people this time. Last time, it was the disciples saying, send them away. They've got to go eat something. You know, they've got to go find something to eat. This time, Jesus says to them, I have compassion on the people. I, 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 I feel the need to feed them. This is where I think we can relate to that, right? Like any time there's a big event, we know that we've, we've got to feed these people. We've got to figure out how to put something on the table. And so he says, I can't send them away. They, they're so far from, from civilization, they probably faint by the time they get there. But the disciples' response is what kind of strikes me. And maybe it's because we have this, maybe it's because the timeline in our lives or in our minds is, is a matter of, minutes in this case, where we've seen the story read out to us just a little while ago. We've meditated on it just recently. But do you think the disciples really had this question as they, as they related to Christ? From whence can a man satisfy these men with bread here in the wilderness? Effectively, how are you going to feed them, Jesus? I mean, that's, that's like... Your kid's coming to you with the most obvious question ever. Are we having dinner tonight? Or it's Sunday morning. Now, that's, that's a better one. It's Sunday morning. Everybody's getting ready for church, getting dressed. So where are we going? I'm trying to think of the exact example, and I'm not going to embarrass the child that did this, but this happens routinely in our house, where everybody's prepared... We could have our ski boots on, and someone will ask, where, where are we going? Not are we going to song, are we going to lab, but like, what are we doing in general? If I'm Jesus and these disciples are, I mean, how, how much more specific do I have to be? How much more um, uh, dynamic do I have to be in feeding these people? I've fed 5,000 people. Plus, the last time. And now, it's almost as if I'm, I'm leading you on, folks. Like, okay, show me that you have a little faith. I have compassion on this multitude. They'll faint if they don't get some food before they leave. And the disciples have the... Uh, I'm going to use it. I'm not, the audacity 
to say, how are you going to do this? And Jesus doesn't rebuke them. He just says, how many loaves have ye? The last time was, what can we find? All we found here was this little boy's lunch. This time, it's the disciples have loaves. They've got seven loaves of bread amongst them. And Jesus says, give them to me. How many do you have? They said seven. Give them to me. And he commanded the people to sit down on the ground. Again, this is like, this is why biblical scholars and folks, folks that probably shouldn't be, sometimes say that this, didn't ha- that this was one account that they're just talking about twice. No, this was two times this happened. And in the same way that we have issues with our kids, and you'll see that God has issues with us, how we don't remember things, he's having the same scenario. It doesn't say that he set them down in order by oldest to youngest or anything like that, but he says he commanded them to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, gave thanks and break, and gave to the disciples to set down before them. And they did set them before the people. I could replay what I said a couple weeks ago. We don't know how the miracle took place. We don't know if, if this was like, um, like a communion service where you're handing the bread and just as you break off your piece, the, this loaf is just continuing and it's breaking off more and more and more and more. We don't know how it happened. We don't know if there were just, he finished the prayer, amen, and there were baskets everywhere. We don't know how it happened. Someday we can ask. But somehow they went from seven loaves to being able to feed this multitude of people. And we'll find out at the end that, well, I won't steal the punchline. Another interesting piece that that jumps in here, it says, and they, I'm assuming the disciples, also had a few small fishes. And he blessed and commanded them to also sit down before them. So they did eat and were filled and took up the broken meat and there were left seven baskets. The disciples, I'm out on a limb here with the disciples. Jesus, had, they asked, he, he asked how many loaves they had. They gave him the loaves. He blessed the loaves, broke the loaves, fed the people with the loaves. And at some point, one of the disciples said, we had fish the last time too. We've got a couple fish here if you want those too. It, the way that I read it was that they went and had another blessing, another breaking, and another distribution of the fish. And what it struck me was, do I do that with God too? How many times do I shortchange him? Do I know exactly what he was asking of me and I give what I want to give of my talent, not my talent, of my usefulness, my ability, whatever, of whatever obedience that he's asking of me. I, I give that and then I realize afterwards, boy, there was so much more that I could have given. Well, Lord, well, take, take this too. I don't expect, or I didn't recognize at the time, that what he was asking of me was everything that I had. And again, it doesn't say that he rebuked them. It doesn't say that he said anything um, corrective or discipline. You know, he, he didn't admonish them in any way for that. But the fact that there had to be two blessings, there had to be two gifts, there had to be two feedings here in, in some ways because that was withheld from the beginning. It strikes me. And then to just talk about the, the blessing and to talk about how God multiplies things. You started with seven loaves and you end up conveniently, coincidentally, with seven baskets left over. Let's read the next portion. 
And straightway he entered into a ship with his disciples and came into the parts of Dalmethnutha, I think. And the Pharisees came forth and began to question with him, seeking of him a sign from heaven, tempting him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why doth this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And he left them and entered into a ship again, departed to the other side. Let's stop again for a second. There's no... I won't say it that way. The miracles that Christ was performing were going to be clearly known and evidently seen by everyone around. He had a reputation. These thousands of people following him out into the wilderness were not just going home and keeping it to themselves. This was something everyone was going to know about. And so, understandably, the Pharisees know about this as well, and the Pharisees want to come and tempt Christ. And, and the way they do that is not to throw stones or to contradict or to try to explain away the miracles that they already know he's performed, but they ask him to double down. They say they're seeking a sign from heaven. And when you, if you look into, there's a couple other interpretations or commentaries and things that they talk about them asking for a supernatural um, sign. The explanation would have been something like a storm, lightning, thunder, an earthquake, something like that. And a reaction that I don't think we see anywhere else in Scripture, at least I couldn't find it anywhere else, it says that he sighed deeply in his spirit. And I, 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 I wonder what that was like. I wonder what was going through Christ's mind. I mean, we, can, we read what he said. Why does this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you that no sign shall be given unto this generation. It's, I wonder what he was sighing about. And I have a conjecture. He had given all of this evidence. He had shown all of this evidence of the power that God had given him, that he as God on earth here... Um, ministering mercy and healing and love to, to all of these multitudes, teaching about what the kingdom was, um, ministering to the needs of, of all of these, you know, the lame, the crippled, the blind, the deaf. We're going to read another one a little bit later in this chapter. And yet the Pharisees, the Pharisees come to him and, and ask for something independent of that. They don't want anything that, would, that relates to humanity or to the love of God, but to something that would show the power of God, that something that would show the power of his ability, that would maybe even lend itself to, to more the political side of things and to, to be someone that would be more revolutionary or, uh, or something that would get him in trouble with Rome or... And his reaction is just to, is, is to sigh deeply. This disappointment. Why does this nation seek after, this generation seek after a sign? Verily I say unto you, there shall no sign be given unto this generation. And he left them and entered into the ship again, departed to the other, to the other side. I don't imagine, and I think we'll read 
it here. I don't think that that thought or that feeling left him quickly because as we'll continue to read now, we can see it come out in some of his interaction with the disciples. It says, Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread. Neither had they in the ship with them more than one loaf. Just let that sink in for a second. Also talking about your kids. There were seven baskets that we left on the other side and all, now we forgot all we have left is this one loaf. And he charged them saying, Jesus charging the disciples saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Just one simple phrase, one short sentence. And you're the disciples and you're clearly distracted, always about food, apparently. You have this one loaf of bread and Jesus is telling you to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and of Herod. And they, in verse 16, and they reasoned among themselves saying, is it because we have no bread? I wish I, I mean, I'm sure if I thought about this for longer than 10 seconds, I could come up with another example with the kids because this happens again all the time. You make a comment, mom and dad are having a conversation, something, not that every conversation is very deep, but something deep, something intellectual, and you make a comment to the kids in the back seat and they are taking that very literally, wondering, does that mean I'm supposed to, probably has something to do with taking a bath or cleaning up their room or something like that. And they're focused on the temporal. They're focused on the instant fixing whatever the situation's problem is. So their reaction is probably understandable. But Jesus responds to them and says, Why reason ye because ye have no bread? Perceive ye not, neither understand, have ye your heart yet hardened? Having eyes, see ye not, and having ears, hear ye not? And do ye not remember? When I break the five loaves among five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? They say unto him, Twelve. And when the seven among four thousand, how many baskets full of fragments took ye up? And they said, Seven. And he said unto them, How is it that ye do not understand? I'll confess, when I started reading this uh, the last couple of days, I was struggling to see what, what was Jesus really trying to point out here? Because he's having this conversation about the leaven of the Pharisees and clearly talking about a spiritual thing. And then when the disciples have this reaction, like good obedient children, and they didn't bring what they're supposed to, didn't have enough bread for the rest of the journey, and he says to them, um, do you not understand? Did you not remember that, I'm, that I, let me go back. When we had 5,000 people and you gave me these few little loaves, how much did we have left over? And they said 12. Oh, yeah, okay, good. Now, when we just did this 15 minutes ago or two days ago or whatever it was, and 4,000 people and seven loaves and leftover with seven baskets, do you not understand? And they didn't. They were still trying to understand what he was, what he was laying down. And when I, when I look back at it, I wonder too, is this, this situation, they didn't understand that the leaven, well, they didn't understand what was the leaven, what was the sin that the Pharisees were trying to, to plant or were trying to pervade into the rest of society. They couldn't follow what that leaven was. And when we look at it and when we see how he breaks this down for them, 
This, first of all, they could not understand, would not embrace who he was. They would not believe who Christ was. They would not believe that Christ was the one that was going to care for all of their needs, that was there from the beginning, that in spite of their, their lack of belief, in spite of their disobedience, in spite of their gradual ability to embrace understanding and truth, that he was going to provide for them. That whether it was in the wilderness with a little boy's lunch or whether it was going to be off here, this, this past interaction that they had, that he was going to provide for their every need. And they needed to rely, and, to rely on him and submit to him. But they couldn't, they couldn't see that in the moment. They couldn't understand that this unbelief that the, the, that the uh, Pharisees were trying to, not trying to, to push, but were continually pushing, was going to be insidious and was going to be invasive and pervasive, if that's the right word. This, and I guess I never even really thought about it deeply enough. But when we talked, and I think it was Bible class two weeks ago, we talked about yeast and baking bread. And this is not my wheelhouse, so I'd, I like to cook. I don't bake. But I knew at one point uh, during the pandemic when everything started that yeast, you couldn't go anywhere and get yeast. I remember going to Aldi's. Ashley asked me to pick up yeast. And I'm like searching I, for my first time at Aldi's, first of all. And I'm searching the shelves for yeast. I didn't even know wow, what it looked like. I didn't even know if it, I found out it comes in a little pack. I had no idea. But I knew that if you mix the yeast in the rest of the ingredients, the dough rises. That, that part I got. And so every time I've thought about these, these passages where Christ is talking about the leaven of the Pharisees or, and using leaven, yeast, as a, an, uh, an example of sin, I always was thinking of it as a, a fresh ingredient that you're throwing back in there. Some, you know, open the package and, and pour it in. But at the time, and you all probably know this already, but let me go down this path. At the time, that wasn't how they used their yeast. They had their starter. I think we talked about starter last time. But in some cases, it was taking a piece of the, the bread, taking a piece of what they had already baked, what they'd already cooked, and using that as the starter for the next, the next recipe. And that leaven, that yeast, that growth would pervade and per, would permeate the rest of the dough and, and cause that dough to then rise. And it sounds like a beautiful thing. It sounds like, oh, we all love bread. Not supposed to, but we do. And we think of it in this beautiful experience of growth and brings about this great result. But what, what Christ was pointing out to him was like this, this invasive unbelief, this invasive um, perspective or position, I'm not using the right word, that the Pharisees were pushing was to clamp down and would not allow there to be any belief in Christ, was not going to allow there to be any belief in Christ being the Messiah and being the one that was bringing about these, these miracles. And what he was telling the disciples was if you're not careful, if you're not watching to keep that keep yourselves pure, then this insidious, sinful mindset is going to invade all other areas of your lives. And he is pointing it out just in the simple terms of, did you not see what was going on here? 
At the very beginning of our story, the very beginning of when we started, his disciples answered him, from whence can a man satisfy these out in the wilderness? How are you going to feed all these people? And Jesus has to tell them, how have you forgotten this already? It's one page in our Bible. It couldn't have been that many days. It couldn't have been that many miles. The lake isn't that big. They were sailing across it. And yet, they had forgotten. Or they were discouraged and they weren't able to remember. And there I go making the excuse that I give myself as to why I'm not recalling the goodness of God frequently enough. Why I'm not allowing myself to rely on him as fully as I should be. As completely as I should be. How is it that you do not understand? Verse 22, And he comes to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man to him, and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the town. And when they had spit on his eyes and put his hands upon him, he asked, if he, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and said, I see men as trees walking. And that he put his, after that, he put his hands upon his eyes and made him look up, and he was restored and saw everything, every man clearly. Excuse me. And he sent him away unto his house, saying, Neither go into the town, nor tell it to anyone in the town. I can't find another reference like this. Maybe you know of one. But this is the only time I can recall Jesus healing somebody in increments, in stages, in steps. What happens? He... I don't want to say he rebukes his disciples, has this deep, hard conversation with his disciples, tells them, how is it you don't understand? And then they come to Bethsaida, and there's a blind man. And just as he's done every other time, he goes to heal the man. This is one I think Max was even telling us about this one. Well, this is where he spit in the dirt and made the mud and put it in his eyes. And Yeah, we know the story so well, but what happens? Puts the mud on the man's eyes, and he says, how does it look? And the man says, I see men walking around like trees. Many of you wear glasses or have contacts, or otherwise you've been there where they're switching the little lenses in front of you. How does that look? What's better, one or two? A or B? Four or six? I don't know. They've never, it's never consistent. But, and you tell them which one's better. Or if you're the doctor and you're working on somebody's eyes and you pull the bandages off, well, tell me, how did it go? How does it feel? How does it look? If I'm the doctor and he says, well, I see men and it looks like men walking around that kind of look like trees. You know you've got to go back in and do something else. Why? Why was this not the one where there was uh, a miraculous healing on the first time? I'll, I have my opinions on that. It says that Jesus went then again and did it again. Put his hands on the man's eyes. Touched him this time. And he saw every man clearly. The disciples are still with him. The disciples are still standing there. The disciples are walking with him this whole time. And if they're perceptive at all, they have to be understanding that Christ is showing them another example of gradual growth. I, I think of the, the love of the Father, the, the patience of a father to be able to say, you know, you should have, doesn't even say, you should have got this already. He had a pretty hard conversation with them between 17 and 20. 
it shows disappointment. It shows their need for growth. But then he gives them a miracle in stages showing, you know what, I'm working with you here. I'm working with you here. You're going to understand this. I'm going to keep giving you direction and keep giving you teaching and instruction so that you can embrace this and be able to understand what true faith and belief is. Last little portion. We won't, we won't finish the, the passage. And Jesus went out with his disciples into Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, or while they were walking, he asked his disciples, saying unto them, Whom do men say that I am? Now, mind you, this is specifically the question. This question right here is the heart of what this fight with the Pharisees was about. Is who do you say, who am I? And they answered, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others, one of the prophets. And he saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and said unto them, thou art the Christ. And he charged them that they should tell no man of him. Now that's, this is again probably further evidence of this um, impression that Mark had a lot of Peter's assistance as he was writing. We know the passage in, in Matthew as this is recorded. I just want to read it there. Forgive me, 16. Jesus answered, uh, it's Matthew 16, 17. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, just so nobody can say that I avoided the tough parts of the chapter. We don't have time to read it all right now. A couple verses later, Jesus does call him, Get thee behind me, Satan. So Peter rode the roller coaster here too. And there were moments that he understood exactly what the mission was. And there were other moments where his head got ahead of him and his heart was too big for his ability to understand the spiritual context at times. And maybe that gives me more encouragement about this prospect of of gradual growth or of continual growth. But what it says to me most of all is the love of a father to have that kind of patience. The love of a father to have, have to teach the same lesson over and over and over again because he knows his children need to learn it. And there's something that they didn't get the first time. And there's something that they're going to experience in the coming weeks or days or months that is going to need to have this reinforced in their lives. And for me, it was the, the message of, of God being there in every circumstance and providing in spite of me, in spite of my frustration, in spite of my inabilities, in spite of my lack of faith at times, and giving me the grace to, to pause and saying, you know, 
son, you've, you've got to look back at this. You need to dig deeper into this again. You've got to beware of this leaven. Probably should study it a little bit more, but you've got to beware of those little things in our day and age that maybe are different than the things that the, fair, or that the disciples had to, to war against back then. But the ways that pervasive sin in, is, it comes, in, comes at us and tempts us and looks like something else, some wolf in sheep's clothing, and allows us to take away some of the power of, of the Spirit, allows us, not allows, causes us to rely less on the Spirit and rely more on ourselves. Causes us to be the Pharisees here, asking for big signs. God's already done the signs. The miracles are brought about in our lives every single day. The fact that we can be here and read his word and, and speak of the way that it has, it has changed our lives is, is the most powerful miracle. And yet sometimes I'm standing out there asking for something else. I want that changed. I want something else changed. When the reality is it's, it's my heart and my walk that needs to change. To be molded to the, the example and the desire that he has. That the, the, molded to the example that he's given us so that we can model that in the world in which we live. And so I, I would just pray that as we continue through, again, it's, it's such a familiar passage, that when we look back and we, we look at disciples and frankly throw stones. When I look back and say, how in the world could they have missed this? How could they have forgotten something that was so obvious? That had just happened. A lesson that they had just learned. To look back at my own life and see how God has had to teach me the same lesson sometimes twice in the same day. I get up in the morning and, and receive his word and, and want to implant that and make that my, my stepping stone for the rest of the day. And by noontime, I'm already grasping at straws at times. And to be thankful that just like Christ had grace with his disciples, to, to slow them down, to show them another example, to give them another lesson, and then expect them that they were going to go and teach it. And that they were going to show it and, and, and model it to the rest of the world. And I pray that we can do the same uh, as he gives us opportunity.